Thank you, Stephen. Um, if you missed it, my name is Ian. I'm just one of the sinners from this, this congregation, uh, just like all of you guys. And today brings us to the midway point in our Summer Thankfulness series. And today we'll be looking at how and why we should be thankful for other believers. Please keep your Bibles open as we'll be looking at some of the key words and verses as Paul outlines how and why he prays for his, the fellow believers. Have you ever heard some good news or had an experience that you just couldn't help but building us out a song? No, I haven't either. Um, it's, not, it's not that especially common in the real world. But if you've ever watched a musical, and I'm going to go a little bit boomer here, movies like Oklahoma, South Pacific, Sound of Music, Mary Poppins, and more recently, even Frozen. Yes, that is a musical. Um, that's what seems to happen all the time. Pretty much when anything happens, somebody feels the need to burst into song. In the movie The King and I, an English school, school teacher called Anna has been hired as the governess for the King of Siam, or what is now known as Thailand. She's excited to be working there and to meet all the children and get to know them. And of course, she bursts into song and she sings this song about getting to know you, getting to know all about you, getting to like you, getting to hope you like me, getting to know you, putting it my way, but nicely, you are precisely my cup of tea. That, if anyone would like to... Yep, Rod, can we do that as our last song now? Yep. She sings because she's grateful and thankful that she has the chance to be where she is, meeting new people, the King of Siam and his children, all 106 of them. So there's more numbers for you. A few weeks ago, Matt told us about the, where the Bible mentions thankful not less than 161 times. And Mike told us about the word happy or happiness that appears 10 times, and joy and joyfulness about 430 times. And Ron has told us that as a 12-year-old, you can survive being knocked off a sailing boat at least twice. <laughs> and as Steve pointed out, the first seven verses of this passage is one long sentence, or 199 words. You're going to be pleased to know we're not going to go through it word by word, but we are going to tackle some various verses within, the, within that. But before we do, let's pray. Father God, we pray that you give us ears to hear and hearts to believe what your word teaches us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and for your word. Father, settle our minds and our hearts to hear your word this morning. Father God, please help me speak clearly and be true to your word. We pray that you will renew in us a desire to learn more of you, to love you, to serve you and to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. When Paul started the church in Ephesus, he spent around two and a half years there and, he, and then he travelled further on in his missionary journey. He's probably wondering... How the church is going? How is that church that I planted? How are those people? Communication wouldn't have been great in the day, so getting a message from one end of the known world to the other is going to take some time. 
after Paul moves on from Ephesus, he's a long way away. So it's going to take a really long time for him to get any news of that church in Ephesus. It's now been a while since he's been there. He's in prison in Rome. And, word, and finally, word of what the folks in Ephesus have been up to has filtered through to him. That's made Paul thankful and excited. Now, I don't think Paul might have, would have burst into song as he's writing the letter, but he was obviously excited because he didn't use any full stops. What we do know is, and what he did, he did put that, that excitement into prayer. And in this letter, he's sharing what he was praying, praying for the church in Ephesus. The opening words of verse 15 are, for this reason. What reason is that? What reason does Paul have to be thankful for the Ephesians? To find out, we need to step back a bit and consider some of the earlier verses. So let's, let's quickly look back at ver from verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and the belief in him, what you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it in the praise of his glory. The Ephesians have benefited from God's great plan of salvation since before the creation of the world. God chose them. He loved them. Then Christ died for them. They've benefited from that. They've been redeemed. Their sins are forgiven. And God has given them the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing their future inheritance. They've benefited greatly from God's love. Those who were sovereignly chosen or predestined were also the ones who trusted, heard the word of truth and hope, and they believed. God's sovereign choices work, but humans have to respond to that opportunity. In believing the truth of the gospel, the Ephesians have been sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So that's the reason. The Ephesians had heard the word and they believed. Now, let's go back to today's passage, which starts at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So this is why he says he continually gives thanks for their faith. They're stuck with faith in Christ. And he doesn't just pray once. Look at what Paul says he does. He says that he does not cease praying. He's constantly praying. That's not something that slips his mind and, and then occasionally thinks about the church in Ephesus. Oh, that's right. I was there for a while. And no, he, he loves these people. He's praying for them all the time. He's thankful for their love of the Lord Jesus and he wants to encourage them. He can't be with them in prison. He can't be with them in person as much as he'd like to. So he writes them a letter giving thanks, praising them and praising God for what they're doing. He can't be there in person, but at least he can pray. That it's encouraging to know that someone's praying for you, isn't it? 
If someone says, I'm praying for you, we think that's nice. But, it's, but isn't it even better to know what someone's praying for you? If someone says, I'm praying for you about this or that, that can be encouraging. Paul encourages the Ephesians by telling them he's praying for them all the time. And he also explains why he's praying. In verse, verse 15, notice that the faith that Paul's thankful for is a specific faith. It's the faith in the Lord Jesus. The only saving faith is faith in the Lord Jesus. And also his faith, faith is an active faith. The Ephesians have not just heard the word, they're responding to it. The Ephesians demonstrated this active faith in their love for all the saints. That is, all the followers of Jesus. You might remember that Matt Alder spoke about the vertical and horizontal aspects of faith. Here you have that in action. The vertical dimension between the Lord and the Ephesians, as well as the horizontal dimension with the love for all God's people or all the saints. Christians always demonstrate growth in both these dimensions, faith in Christ and love for all believers. I don't know if you've noticed, but our church logo to me depicts this with the cross formed from the outreaching or outstretched arms. When Paul heard of the faith and the love of the Ephesians, he could do nothing else but give thanks for them. This was because their faith and love were evidence of their participation in the great works of God. The Ephesians could have placed their faith in any number of God, false gods or idols, but they chose not to. Paul not only gave thanks for God's work among the Ephesians, he also prayed it would continue in greater strength, as the letter continues in verses 17 to 19. Let's look from verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation on the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called, which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the workingness of his great might? What Paul's saying here, he prays for the Ephesians to become wiser in order to live for the Father. And this is, isn't street smarts wiser, but more knowledgeable of God, getting to know God better. God has given them the Holy Spirit and Paul prays the Spirit will be at work in their lives, helping them to know God more, knowing the inheritance that they have waiting for them. It's not that they don't know him, they have faith in God already. And he's thankful for that. What he says is, he prays that God's spirit will help them to get to know God more. Paul prays that God will give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they'll know him better, that they will get to know him more. Not that they'll discover something new, but they'll get to know the God that they already know even more. Notice there's a link here between wisdom and knowing God better. You may know about God, but that's not the same as knowing him personally. That's only possible as we put our faith in Jesus as our Saviour and Lord. He doesn't say, you've come to faith now, that's great, the end, don't worry about anything else, you're now saved. In fact, it's the opposite. He says, now that you have come to faith, develop that, 
grow that relationship with God. It's the number one thing that Paul wants for this church here in Ephesus. Imagine if Paul could do more for the church, what would he do? Well, I think what he would do, he'd continue teaching them about God. That's what Paul wants for the church, to know God better. And notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, my heart's desire for you is that you'll be free from all your troubles. Nowhere in Paul's prayer does he ask them to be happy or healthy or wealthy or free from suffering or persecution. He's not praying that they have a comfortable life. Tim Keller, who you may have heard of, he's written a few good books, points out that in all of Paul's writings, Paul never makes an appeal or a prayer for a change in anyone's circumstances. Paul says, know God more. No matter your life circumstances, rich or poor, older, younger, persecuted or free, doesn't matter. Get to know God. Knowing God more doesn't come from learning some kind of secret or participating in some kind of ritual or figuring out all the different numbers in the Bible and adding them together and subtracting a number of books and working out some kind of secret code. That's not how we know God more. In fact, those things take away from knowing God. Look back at that, verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. This is referring to the true meaning and goal of life, which is not about this world, but what awaits in heaven. Paul is praying that the eyes of the heart may be enlightened so that they might be increasingly focused on eternity and to what God has in store, our glorious inheritance. And what is that inheritance? hope. In Colossians, Paul refers to this as the hope laid up in heaven. And in Titus, he equates this to the hope of eternal life and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Paul writes in verse 19 that the Ephesians will, will know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the workings of his great might, that he worked that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in the age but also in the one to come. Paul wants the Ephesians to know the power of God in the life of the believer, the power of, to live godly and useful lives, the power to save. In my reading while preparing for this talk, I found, in the found that in the original text for this passage, the word used for power was dunamis, which also translates to strength or mighty works. Many centuries later, dunamis became the root word for dynamite, which we all know that dynamite can be pretty powerful. The power of just one bomb can cause a lot of death and destruction when misused. But real power isn't killing, and killing one another, it's bringing people back from the dead. Paul says this real power comes from God, who raised Christ from the dead. Bringing people to new life, raising people from the dead, no one's figured out how to do that. No one except God has that power. God's power is so great that it will dwarf any type of bomb. He can raise people to life, new life and eternal life. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's power because he kills death itself.
Jesus is raised to new life, conquering death, not just for him, but for all who turn to him in faith. This is the same power that God uses in our lives, the same power to bring Jesus back from the dead. He used it to bring us back from the dead, to know that we have the same hope of eternal life with God. So vast and so rich that Paul eagerly desires the Ephesians to know God more so they can appreciate how good all this is. Paul's been constantly praying for the Ephesians that they know God more. He prays that God that will reveal more of himself to them so that they can truly understand how great, incredible, glorious, beautiful and amazing this inheritance is and how powerful God is. It's bigger and better than anything else you could ever find. So Paul is saying, for this reason, because it's so good, stick to faith in Christ because Christ will be head over absolutely all things everywhere. That's the kind of power that we will see at work. And we got a taste of just a glimpse of that with Jesus and his resurrection. And since God is so immeasurably powerful, we too can be confident of his plan of salvation will come through. The prayer that Paul prays unceasingly is that he's thankful for the belief of the Ephesians and their hope in the Lord, and also that they know more about God, to get to know God better. All these blessings that are true for the Ephesians are true for us today. We ought to be a bit more like Anna from The King and I, and that movie title's quite appropriate, as she sings her song about how eagerly she desires to get to know all these kids. We've got to take that approach with God, knowing that God has all power and so will do what he said he will. To do that, firstly, we should pray. And when we do pray, be thankful for your fellow believers around you and do so all the time. Be thankful that they know of God. Pray that they will be moved to develop their relationship with God. Even as Christians, we still need to be reminded constantly how great it is that God saved us and those around us and of the power of God that is at work and how incomparable it is and just how great these things are. We're often caught up in the things of this world, praying for somebody's health or financial situation. It's not a bad thing, but, we shouldn't just, but that shouldn't just what we're concerned about. Paul's example to me is a wake-up call that simply praying for the things of life are really minimising what God wants for us. It's not wrong to pray for those things, but we should also be concerned with people's spiritual well-being. We should pray that their spiritual well-being and, their, uh, and for their spiritual growth. Pray that they'll grow in their knowledge and love of God. That's what Paul does here in his prayer. That's his focus. Secondly, Take every opportunity for yourself to know God more and encourage others to come along on that journey. Read the Bible, pray, talk about things, come along to church, come to the prayer nights, come along to base camp or the women's retreat. Join a small group Bible study. Be thankful that we have those opportunities to get to know God. Many don't have that opportunity to do it openly and to do it safely. Historically, we've been taught that we can know God in part through his creation. We can read in Romans that creation is, is evidence that God exists and that we can see something of his power in that. 
John Calvin likens creation to a spacious and splendid house, provided and then filled with the most exquisite and most abundant furnishings. Everything in it tells us of God. Calvin is saying that the world itself tells us of God. We should be able to see his splendour and his glory and his pa- and power in this creation. In the same way that you could visit someone's house, you might be able to tell what kind of person they are based on what you see in their house. You can see the family photos and the types of things they own. We can get a sense for what they're like, but unless we develop a personal relationship, then we don't really know as much about them as we could. Unless we can identify the people in the photos when we see that in someone's house, we don't really know who they are. J.I. Packer, in the book called Knowing God, says this. There's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. When you truly know God, you have energy to serve him, boldness to share him, and contentment in him. To know more about God, God would have to reveal it to us. God has revealed himself to the world, but he has made himself known more deeply, more personally, by giving us Jesus. God has made himself known to us in Jesus. And so if we want to know more about God, we really need to know Jesus more. We can be tempted to, be, to see becoming Christian as crossing the finishing line, but that's wrong. Becoming a Christian is not the end of growing in the knowledge of God. It's just the beginning. We should always be striving to grow in our faith, to know more about God, to be more like Jesus, to be encouraging others along the road also. If Jesus has ascended into heaven, as we know he has, if he's sitting at the right hand of the Father with all authority over everyone and everything, everywhere, as we know he does, then we should really get to know him. So for this reason, let's pray and give thanks for all that God has done in Christ and ask God, ask that God will reveal more of himself so that all of our fellow believers can get to know him better, just as Paul prayed for the Ephesians. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks that you have made yourself known, that you have shown us how great you are and how much you love us through the sacrifice of your son Jesus and how you're using your incomparable power to save us. Help us, Lord, to take Paul's approach to knowing you and desiring you more and wanting to know you more. Please, Lord, send your spirit to work in the lives of the believers, helping them to know you better, to know their inheritance and to know your great power for all of us. Lord God, we pray that we will get to know you more. Help us, Lord, to have the same spirit of wisdom and revelation that Paul asks for the the Ephesian church. And Father, we pray that you will work in our lives and those around us, growing us to love you more and to know you more day by day. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll have a short time of reflection now uh, before we move in towards our final song.